here this morning, and thanks for, for being here as we continue our sermon series, Words to Live By. If you're tuning in online, thanks for doing that. We, uh, we look forward to actually meeting you, and so we want to encourage you to stop by some morning at 1045. We're going to be here on Sunday mornings. We'd love to have you. Uh, this morning, we, we are continuing through, like I said, uh, our, our current sermon series, but I want to ask you a couple of questions before we kind of get started here about, uh, was it the Rolling Stones? They're, they're a little before me that had that song, I Can't Get No Satisfaction. Was, was that who it was? Was it the Stones? Okay, I always the Stones and the Beatles are a couple of British bands that were before my time. I don't know who they were. But anyway, but they sing this song, and it kind of was kind of catchy, and everybody kind of, you know, they like, they like the fact that the grammar's bad and all that sort of stuff. But it just talks about I, I can't be satisfied in things. And so this morning, I, I want to immediately frame your mind a little bit about the ideal of satisfaction, being satisfied, or a lack of satisfaction, of searching for whatever that satisfaction may be in your life, where it comes from, and how do we do that, and even some of the pitfalls we run into. Uh, because it is Super Bowl Sunday, I think it would be appropriate to watch a, a short clip uh, that may set us up just a little bit. It's not a funny one, so don't get excited about that. I didn't have one of those this week. But, but it does help us kind of explain a little bit about uh, where we are. And if you're a football fan at all, because most people are on Super Bowl, not the rest of the year, but only on the Super Bowl. And it's really because it's uh, what kind of cheese dip are people going to bring to the party. And so I, I know how you are. And so let's watch this short video real quickly, and then we're going to just talk about it for a second. Why do I have three Super Bowl rings and, and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey, man, this is what it is. I reached my goal, my dream, my life is me. I thank God. It's got to be more than this. I mean, this isn't, this can't be what it's all cracked up to be. I mean, I've done it. I'm 27. And what else is there for me? What's the answer? I wish I knew. I wish I knew. I mean, it's... I think that's part of me trying to go out and experience other things. But there's a... I know I love playing football and I love being the quarterback for this team. And But at the same time, I think there's a lot of other parts about me that I'm trying to find. And different ways of expression, being around... I know what ultimately makes me happy are family and friends. And positive relationships with with great people and I think I get more out of that than anything some of you know that that's Tom Brady as as many in the football world call him the goat the greatest of all times and that was a 2005 interview after he had won his third Super Bowl now he's actually won six Super Bowls he's the only quarterback to ever do that um, and even this past year, his contract was up. And so people were wondering, did he play his last game uh, for the Patriots? Which I doubt that's the case. But whatever the case may be, in 2005, at 27 years old, you heard him say that there's got to be more. There has to be something else to this. I mean, gosh, surely this isn't it. There has to be something else. And if you're in the sporting world, the Super Bowl itself is the pinnacle of having made it, having reached it. And now Tom has done that uh, six times already, uh, and he, by all accounts, is the greatest of all time. He's got all kinds of records, and he's still playing, and he's like 42 years old. I think he's like a year younger than I am, and I look at Tom, and I look at me, and I just go, I can take him. But, uh, but, but he does say that thing, and I even loved how he kind of rambled a little bit when they were asking him, well, what do you think the answer to that satisfaction is? And he didn't seem to know what the answer is. He says, gosh, I wish I knew. Gosh, I wish I knew. And I appreciate his honesty, even at 27, to know what we know now when he and I are both in our mid-40s. I appreciate his honesty to say, well, I wish I knew, because to be honest, I think there's still a lot of people, regardless of their age, even as they get older, that are still looking for, I don't know what is 
satisfying. I'm not totally sure. I know I like spending time around family and friends. It's great. But let's face it, if that was really true, we'd have more than just Thanksgiving and Christmas with them before we sent them home. Because, come on, those family meals can be torturous, can't they? They're not really all that satisfying, especially if you're the cook and you watch everybody devour everything in 10 minutes for all the hours you put into it. Is it just my house? Am I the only one? Satisfaction is such a, a strange thing. And, and while we're not all NFL quarterbacks or sports fans or anything like that, there, there's another option that we can explore. And so I want, to look, I want you to show the survey up here. Um, this was a 2019 article in um, the uh, American Medical News Journal. And you may not be able to see all those things, but it talked about there were 10 strong things that were identified in strong, healthy marriages. And so uh, there were several other things that were identified here, but I want to highlight a couple of these things of what they asked these, these people. And so I'll read them for you. Uh, number one, I'm very satisfied with how we talk to each other. 90% of happy couples said that this really makes a lot of sense to them. I'm satisfied with how we talk to each other. Now, notice it's two, not about. All right, so I see a couple of you smiling like, oh, yeah, I talk about my husband all the time. No, 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 it, it's two. And so that's a factor there. Number two, we're cre uh, creative in how we handle our differences. Well, that went down a little bit. They, they apparently communicate well, but they're creative in how they handle their differences. I think, just me, the 22% that, that answered negatively there were probably the men that just said, yes, dear, every time there was a conflict. And while that sounds like the path of least resistance, let me tell you, that's, that's, a, that's a recipe for failure. Don't do that because there needs to be some dialogue in that conflict and some creativity in how you manage those conflicts. Number three, we feel very close to each other, 98%. Man, there's a lot to that. It does speak to a level of sexual intimacy within a marriage. It also just speaks to just an intimacy that is built way beyond the bedroom. It's, it's doing dishes together, it's sitting down and reading, it's spending time, it's holding her hand, it's, it's watching the two old people at the mall that are holding hand in hand and just going, I want that. And so there's, there's an intimacy there that builds in time, and anybody who's been married long enough know that that actually increases, but it ebbs and flows a little bit sometimes, and it's usually based upon your attitude, not the attitude of your spouse, but that makes a difference. Number four, my partner is seldom to controlling. I love how they use that little modifier there, seldom to controlling. Doesn't mean that she's not always too controlling, she's just seldom too controlling. But it did rank out at 78%, which just goes to show there needs to be some balance in there. And so if you ask both husband and wife these questions, they're going to both answer this way. There needs to be some balance in there that I don't always get what I want, I don't always demand what I want, but I also give and take a little bit too, so there has to be some of that. Number five, when discussing problems, my partner understands my opinions and ideas, uh, which is 87% of people who have those markers for a happy marriage um, say that my partner understands those things. Number six, I'm completely satisfied with the amount of affection my partner shows me. It's only 72%, but I mean, that matters. That, that's a difference. And listen, uh, my wife and I have two children. We're empty nesters now. Uh, and I can just speak a little bit into that, especially some of you have different uh, age children or more children. Um, that kind of ebbs and flows in time. And sometimes things just aren't as, as affectionate um, today as you'd like for them to be. Sometimes things just, uh, uh, just don't work out like they're supposed to and busy and schedule and calendar. I know there's a lot of things in there. But other factors, number seven, we have a good balance of leisure time spent together and separately. Now, my parents have been married for, uh, my mom and my stepdad have been married now for uh, 41 years. And um, uh, they have worked together side by side, six, seven days a week, 70 hours um, for all those 40 years. Uh, in 2012, I took my dad to Panama with me for six days. It was the first time in their entire marriage he'd been away from my mom for more than two days. 
And I, I mean, and he wasn't a wreck. He was actually in pretty good shape. But I took him to Panama with me to go check something out about a mission trip and opportunity. And I didn't realize that he had never been away from my mom for that long. And I asked him while we were down there because he said something about it because I could sense dad was missing mom. And I said, Dad, how, how, how do you do that? How, how can you be with her 24-7 all the time? I mean, Amanda loves me, but she asked me all the time, aren't you going on a trip somewhere? Don't you need to go somewhere? I mean, she's kind of ready for me to go at times, and, and, and I love her too, but i got to have some distance. I can't, I can't, how do you guys do this? And it took my wife actually explaining it to me and saying, your dad is enamored with your mother. I mean, he just he loves her more than you could possibly imagine. Like, well, I grew up watching that, so that, that was normal for me. I don't see it the way she does, but it's just the amount of time and the affection that they have together and a good balance of a good and leisure. For them, their balance is everything's together. Um, for, for our home, we, we have different interests, my wife and I do. And so I'm excited when she goes and explores some of those things, especially when she doesn't ask me to go with her. It works out pretty good. Number eight, my partner's friends and family rarely interfere with our relationships. Now, anybody who's been married long enough, you know that sometimes in-laws, they mean well. They really do. Amanda and I, when we were first married, we had a little bit of, a, of an argument, a little tiff, and she calls her mom, and her mom did the greatest thing in the world. She says, don't talk to me about this stuff. I don't care. You go talk to your husband. That's y'all's problems. I'm not going to put my nose where it doesn't belong, and you stop calling me on stuff like that. Right then and there, I knew I had the world's greatest mother-in-law. I knew it. She also bakes well, too, and I like that. Number nine, we agree on how to spend money. You know, it's kind of weird this is so far down because we think money is one of those things that kind of tears things apart, but it's, we agree on that. And, and I can just say after 21 years of marriage, we learned a little differently on those areas. You know, it's not so much about asking permission or prompting somebody, but we get to know one another a little bit and we understand that whatever comes into the household is ours, not mine or yours or divided up. We're one. Number 10 here, I'm satisfied with how we express spiritual values and beliefs. And that's 89% of people who have these indicators of, of a happy marriage say, I'm satisfied with that. Now, look, that can go both ways. This was not a Christian survey. It could go both ways. We don't express Christian or, or spiritual beliefs at all, or we're on the same page. And one of the questions that I always ask people whenever we do marriage counseling is simply this, how will you raise your children? If you're Catholic, if you're a Christian, if you're Hindu, if you're uh, agnostic, whatever, and you have children, how are you going to raise those kids? These conversations are important. So while I want you to have a Christian worldview and a belief in that, if the two of you come from different places, how you raise your children is going to matter. How you spend your money is going to be impacted by that. Where you live, how you celebrate holidays, the things that you place value on, those things are important. And those are some of the stuff, especially for our younger people who get married, they don't think about that sort of stuff. and They don't always listen well. Anybody got kids who've been married and you try to give them some of that advice and you just kind of shake their head and go, yeah, they'll figure that out eventually, I hope. And so these are indicators for um, what makes a happy marriage. Now, I get it. Not all of us are married. Some of us are in between marriages. Some of you, many of you, actually, this is your second marriage. Um, and some of you are so young, you're thinking, I'm never going to get married because that's just gross, and, and I don't even like to see mom and dad kiss. Well, it's a good thing they did, okay? That's why you're here. But here's something that you maybe can identify with. Have you ever just been so hungry or thirsty, just so badly, that you just can't seem to be satisfied in what's, what, what's out there? So I found another article this week that talked about some of those factors that when you eat a meal, I mean, even after you eat something, like we went out last night and we had a, I had this gigantic uh, uh, Caesar salad with chicken on it, and it was huge. You know, they made a lot of money off of me because they put a whole let of, uh, head of lettuce in a bowl and charged me like 12 bucks, right? And, and so I ate this, and I, get, I went home, and I went straight to the pantry. 
I was still hungry. You'd think with, you know, an entire head of lettuce in my, in my stomach, I, w- I wouldn't be um, uh, full but not satisfied. Have you ever been just full but you're not satisfied? Like, I can't eat anymore, but there's still something in me that's there. And so if you're taking notes this morning, I would encourage you to write this down because it's going to come back into play in just a few minutes. But one of the things they found was, was diet. People who are on a diet and they've reduced their caloric intake, when they eat, their body is saying, hey, I'm used to getting more than what you're giving me right now, and I'm still hungry. Even though I'm full, I'm still hungry and I want some more. Because this is what I'm used to. This is how you've trained me. I mean, look at this right here. You don't get this way on accident. This takes training, right? And so when you're on a diet and reducing your calories, even though you fill up and you eat, you're still wanting some more. You're not satisfied. The second one is sugar. High sugary diets, uh, lots of sugar in your, in your foods that you eat. Sugar dissolves so quickly, goes straight in the bloodstream. It actually empties out of your stomach very quickly. And so you can eat a you know, half gallon of Bluebell ice cream like this guy over here on this side of the room over there, right? And, and he's going to be hungry shortly thereafter because that sugar runs through his system very, very quickly. And if you're in sucralose or artificial sweeteners, those things are like 400% sweeter than regular sugar. And it just makes it even worse. Uh, the next one there is, is meat, protein. Um, we know that protein actually fills us up a little bit more. And, and there's, there's something to be said about eating some of that protein because it equals to fullness. And it actually, uh, your stomach breaks it down a little bit slower. And so you might not get enough protein in your diet. And so you're filling up on fiber and some other things, which are good things. But if you don't get that protein, you're full, but you're still not satisfied. Um, the, the next one that you see up here is, is water. You know, if you drink a glass of water 30 minutes before a meal... Um, you'll actually be, you'll feel fuller and you won't eat as much. But when you don't do that and you fill up on sugary drinks and, you know, Diet Cokes and all that stuff during your meal, you eat this big meal, you drink all these Diet Cokes, and you're still not satisfied. You're full, but you're not satisfied. And then the the next one there is, is rest. We just don't get enough sleep. Our body just didn't have time to stop down and get into the natural circadian rhythms and all this, the science and stuff behind that. And so that we're not metabolizing food like we're supposed to. And so when we don't get the rest, we eat for, for uh, convenience, not for fuel. And food doesn't become something to us that's, that, uh, that we need. It's something that we want, which kind of leads into the next one, which is boredom. And this one was really interesting to me because I think this is me a whole lot is because, you know, idle hands, they say, is the devil's playground. Well, well boredom... Uh, when it comes to eating, is one of those things that, that really kind of makes sense to me. And it's just basically in this article, all it said was is that when you're bored, when you have all this time on your hands, um, you want an, uh, an, uh, an activity that brings about immediate satisfaction, and eating is that activity. And so boredom is a lack of activity, and so you're trying to fill whatever that is in there. And so these factors um, uh, regarding the food that you bring in and everything else contribute to the ideal of of being full but not satisfied. You can eat big meals, you can eat lots of food, but you're still not satisfied. Am I the only one that kind of has felt that way? I mean, you're probably thinking about some of those meals now, and you're probably going to deal with some of that today because it's Super Bowl, and you're going to be eating, you know, all kinds of stuff you don't normally eat. I mean, let's be honest. How many blocks of Velveeta cheese do you really go through um, outside of this week in February in your, in your home, right? You know, if you have any leftover from the, uh, the broccoli and rice casserole uh, from Thanksgiving, it, you know, that stuff never goes bad. I mean, it's going to be cockroaches, Twinkies, and Velveeta cheese. Those things are going to survive the apocalypse, right? But you're going to eat it today. You're going to eat lots of it. What I want you to understand this morning is that when we think about food, we think about relationships, we think about achievements, the problem is that we often fill ourselves up with the wrong things and wonder why we're, we're just not satisfied. I mean, Tom was actually right. There's a lot of good theology behind his statements there. It was like, I've done all these things. This can't be it. Surely there's more. I'm just not satisfied. 
And I don't know if you've ever felt that way, but I have felt that way a lot. And if you have your Bible this morning, I want you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. We're continuing this series called uh, Words to Live By, and we've been walking through the Beatitudes, and we've been going through verse by verse. And if you don't have your Bible, I'm going to put this verse up on the screen. We've got some back there at the Next Step table. Take one with you if you don't have one. We want you to have access to God's Word always. Um, And so in Matthew chapter 5, verse 6, we're going through the Beatitudes, blessed are, blessed are, blessed are. And, and that word blessed just basically seems, uh, uh, means uh, complete joy, complete satisfaction is given to you. And so in Matthew chapter 5, verse 6, Jesus is teaching his disciples um, this principle, this, this ideal, this, this mindset of what a, uh, the character of a person in his kingdom displays. And he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And it's really a magnificent verse because there's a lot of things going on in there. Jesus does something really, really smart. He talks to people in language that they understand. He brings about everyday ideas. I want you to consider for a moment that he's out in the wilderness and he's teaching. And people have been coming to him out in the wilderness because he's making such a spectacle in these towns that when they get out there, they don't have any food. They don't, they don't have access to these things because we'll see twice in Scripture where he'll feed 4,000 people and then he'll feed 5,000 people because he has compassion upon them and he sees that they're hungry. And his disciples will even say, we don't have enough money. There's not enough bread nearby to feed all of these people. Well, what do we have? Jesus will say, we've got a couple of loaves and a couple of fishes. Bring it to me and we'll take care of that. And he filled them with that bread. And so this hunger and thirst is very real to them because they're out in the middle of the wilderness listening to this guy. They know what it is. There's a place in Israel, which is most of southern Israel, which is called the Negev, which is basically the Hebrew word for desert. And if you've ever been in a hot, dry, arid uh, environment, you're thirsty. And if you're not getting all the nutrients that you need and not the food that you need, you're thirsty and you're hungry. Jesus would also have a good understanding of this because in Matthew chapter 4, he just got through being in the wilderness for 40 days having fasted from food and water. He gets it. He knows what this hunger and thirst is for righteousness. And then again, you have this word righteousness, which is is kind of a common word for them, but we kind of misplace it a little bit. What does it mean to be righteous? It just simply means to be be made right with your creator, to be in good standing with, to be in a relationship that is, that is valued in such a way that nothing I do can make me worthy of standing before my king and my creator, but what God has done in me makes me able to stand in front of him and to stand with my head high knowing that he loves me and forgives me. And so Jesus is saying, those of you who hunger and thirst who have not just the physical desire to be fed and watered, but also have that spiritual hunger and thirst for righteousness, not for justice, not for status, not for notoriety, but to be made right with God, to be standing with the one who created you. Those who chase after that and seek after that, you will be satisfied. But if you're chasing after anything else and seeking after anything else and you're trying to find other ways to be made right with God, you will never find the solution. You will not be satisfied. That's a challenge for some of these people when they hear this, I can imagine, because they're saying, well, we don't understand this. We don't get this. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And so this morning, I I, want to encourage you, if you hear nothing else from me this morning, I want you to hear this, this one statement right here. It's here on the board. Fill yourself up with the things of God, and there won't be room for anything else. Fill yourself up with with what is good, what is right, what is noble, what is pure. Think on these things, as, as Paul tells us. Fill yourself up for what is good and right, the things of God, and there won't be room for all this other stuff. 
And we have a lot of room in our calendars, in our checking accounts, um, in how we spend our time for a lot of other stuff that does not satisfy. Just last week, my wife and I, I told you we're empty nesters now, and so we're in the second year of that, and we've, we've, we've begun. We haven't completely um, turned our kids' rooms into playrooms yet for us. Uh, we're close, um, maybe next year. But we went through one bedroom and cleaned some stuff out. In the junk room, we had this catch-all room in our house. And it's amazing the amount of junk we had. My entire truck was loaded with stuff and six 55-gallon trash bags full of stuff that we threw away. I was like, where was all this stuff? I didn't even know we had this. So apparently it was a value to me, right? It didn't satisfy at all, but we, boy, it felt good to throw it away, didn't it? It feels good to get rid of some of those things. And so I want to encourage you this morning, we're going to look at some other places in Scripture, and I don't have them on the screen, but write these things down, to fill yourself up with the things of God, there won't be room for anything else. And so if we go back to our list that we we had a minute ago, I put a couple of verses behind there that you can go back and look at later, but I want to share them with you, and let's just use that list that we had a minute ago to talk about diet. If we're on a diet, if we're reducing our calories, if we're not getting in what we used to get, we're not used to that, we're going to be full but not satisfied. And so go back to the example of Jesus in Matthew chapter 4. When he was out in the wilderness and the devil comes to him and tempts him, and he says to him this in Matthew 4, 1 through 4. You can listen as I read this. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Makes sense. Verse 3, and the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus answered him and said, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. What I really want us to focus on that idea when we think about dieting, especially when it comes to spiritual dieting, is that we cannot live by bread alone, but every word that comes from God. So many times we just want to pick the words, the parts of Scripture, the things that make us feel warm and fuzzy and cuddly, and they don't speak to our sin, to our depravity, to our separation that that keeps us from being right with God. And so we must look at the whole of Scripture. And so when Jesus is tempted by the devil, he answers him with the truth of God's Word that has been true, is true, and will be true until he returns. And he is satisfied in that to the point to where it frustrates the devil and he takes him someplace else and tempts him a different way and says, this isn't going to work. So many times we reduce our intake. We diet on God's word because we only fill up a little bit maybe on Sunday or we might do a study here or there, but God's word is not living and breathing in a part of every day of our life to where that we're intaking it regularly so we don't feel full but unsatisfied when we just hear a little piece of it that we like. Don't diet on scripture. Don't diet on God's word. Fill yourself up with the things of God. You can have as much of God's word as you want. He's not going to tell you, oh, no, 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 I think you're reading your Bible too much. He might actually tell you that if you're neglecting the other responsibilities you have in your life. If you're only reading God's word so that you can get smarter but not apply it to your life and let let it change you from the inside out. But unfortunately, I think so many of us, myself included, we neglect scripture in such a way that we try to fill up on Sunday and we wonder why we're starving come Thursday. Don't diet on scripture. The second thing we see there is sugar. We all know and love sugar. We used to think that sugar on the taste buds was only uh, to the front of the tongue, but what we learn through science now is the tongue is actually scattered with all kinds of different senses for savory and salty and sweet and everything else. There's just different concentrations of it. And so we just love sugar. I mean, everything about sugar is good, right? I mean, it's so good our government subsidizes sugar and has and probably will for a long, long time, so it's got to be good for us, right? I mean, who doesn't love high fructose corn syrup and everything they have. All of you, right? 
look, sugar's good. There's a sweetness about it. We like it. But we're addicted to it in, in, in our culture, especially everything our food is in there. But here's where we get addicted to sugar when it comes to Scripture. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3 says this, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. They won't eat right. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. Sometimes we look for teachings, we look for studies, we look for even parts of Scripture that only speak to the things we want. God talked to me about prosperity. God talked to me about how I can be a better husband. God talked to me about how I can enjoy my life a little bit. But please don't talk to me about the sins in my life. Don't talk to me about lying uh, to my wife about the littlest of things. Don't talk to me about how I waste money on stuff I shouldn't be doing. Don't talk to me about, about any hidden sins that I have in there. I don't want to read those parts of scriptures. And I want to be around people who bring me up and let me stay wallowing in my sin because it's sweet and I love it. I'm addicted to it. You see where... We get the sugary sides of things, and we're full, but we're not satisfied because we filled our things with the things of this world, not with the things of God. We'll look at, at meat for a second. I mean, I love meat. I'm on the ketogenic diet, which says I can eat all the meat that I really want. And that's an awesome thing for me because meat is good. And when, when God said to Peter, hey, he lowered down the sheet, and he says, kill and eat, I think that's one of the greatest passages of scriptures out there because I like it. I mean, we started this church in the back of a barbecue restaurant, for crying out loud. You know I like meat. But in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11 through 14, the writer of Hebrews is talking back to the congregation, and he says to them this, We have much to say about this, but it's hard to explain because you're dull of hearing. Although by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to reteach you the basic principles of God's word. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is still an infant, inexperienced in the message of righteousness. But solid food is for the mature who by constant use have trained their senses to distinguish good from evil. I know the difference between a good steak and a bad steak. I know the difference between fresh meat and frozen meat. I have been trained in the ways of beef. I get it. I understand that. I'm like a sommelier of meat, right? I get that. But what this writer is saying right here is this, is that we would love for the rest of you to be on the meat of God's word, but unfortunately, you're still on the milk. And because you're still on the milk, you're not getting all the nutrients you need. You're not getting all the satisfaction you need. And instead of getting you on the meat, because if I just throw that to you, if you give a toddler or an infant a steak instead of a bottle, bad things happen for a lot of, a lot of good reasons, right? I don't know, my, one of my kids had a little bit of an intolerance to some of the formulas, and I've been around people who have some of that. And you know, they have a meat-based formula. Does anybody know about this? And so instead of it being a milk-based or a plant-based, it's a meat-based formula. And it's because there's a certain level of digestion and everything else. Let me tell you something about that. A baby who is accustomed to milk gets on a meat-based formula. That is not a diaper you want to change. Bad things happen. So many times, especially in the body of Christ, you ought to be teachers by now. You ought to be further along in your faith journey than where you are. You ought to be contributing instead of taking. You shouldn't be suckling on what is just out there for everyone to have at your age. If you've ever seen a child that's been on a bottle for too long, their teeth begin to rot because they're too old to be drinking from a bottle and try to take that away from them. They're going to fight you for that. So many times we're on the wrong diet. We're full, but we're not satisfied. Instead of reaching out there to be satisfied by the things of God, we stay with the things that are familiar. We stay with the things that are easy, and we stay on the milk because it's always there for us. 
The writer of Hebrews is teaching us, don't do that. Grow up, mature, get stronger. Yeah, milk's good, but this is not your baseline meal anymore. You're 27 years old. You should not be drinking from a bottle. Grow up a little bit. Well, what about water? I mean, water is good for life, and throughout all of Scripture, you're going to see where water is this great necessity. Jesus walks on water. Moses parts the Red Sea. Moses talks to the rock, says, bring forth water. He strikes a rock, bring forth water. Every time you see anything of, any, uh, of great importance, any battle that's out there, they want to be near water. 75% of the world's population lives near water. There's a reason for that because water is essential for life. But in Jeremiah chapter 2, as Jeremiah is called by God, and God tells Jeremiah a terrible thing. He goes, Jeremiah, I want you to stay here. I want you to preach to these people. Now, here's the thing. They're going to hate you. They're going to despise you. They're going to mock you. They're going to ridicule you. They're going to try to kill you. But I need you to stay here. I need you to keep telling them the truth over and over and over again. He's called a weeping pastor for a, for a reason. Because he just preaches till he's blue in the face. And he just weeps at the depravity in front of him. And at the beginning of Jeremiah, chapter 2, verse 13, he says this. For my people, this is God. When he's talking to Jeremiah, he says, my people have committed two great evils. First of all, they've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. And secondly, they hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. My people have forsaken me, and when they forsook me, they disrespected me, they disregarded me, they didn't trust me, they didn't believe in me, they didn't follow me, and they wondered why bad things are happening. And then they realized, hey, we're actually thirsty, so here's what we'll do. Instead of trusting the God who is taking care of us for all these years, we'll just go over here and we'll dig a big hole in a rock, which requires a lot of work, and we'll pray for rain, or we'll go get buckets, and we'll pour it in here, and this will be where we, we get our water from. That's dirty, nasty water, and most of the time it doesn't hold. You've got to do a lot to build a pond. I don't know if you know that. You can't just go dig a hole out in your backyard. You've got to line it with clay and rocks and all this other stuff. If you let it sit there stagnant, what happens? You get all the green algae and mold, and you don't want to be drinking that stuff. I've been on 30 different mission trips in my lifetime in, in almost every continent in the world in some pretty rough, challenging places. And the one question people always ask me, where do you get your water from? How, how, do, you, how do you drink? Where do you get your water? Do you take one of those little purification things with you? No. I usually buy bottled water. i got a rule. If it's not bottled or boiled, I don't drink it. But when it comes right down to it, everybody's looking for water. And here's the thing. We've been drinking stagnant, stale, nasty, dirty water because we forsook God, turned our back on him, and we're full, but we're not satisfied. We get those basic needs, but you also get giardia and everything else when you drink water from a nasty stream. You're full, but you're not satisfied. The next one here is rest. Man, listen, there is not a lazier human being on this planet than the guy you're looking at right here. When it comes to the path of least resistance, I'm all for it. And I like, I used to. Now, I'm a little bit older now. I had a birthday this last week. I'm a little bit older now, but I used to be one of those guys that just ran and ran and ran and ran and ran. Until today, I still can't hardly take naps. When I do, I just crash hard. I got to be just worn smack out. I don't like to rest. I feel like I'm missing something. I feel like there's more I could be doing. I feel guilty about taking time out to go and do this when I should be doing that. Now my body just says, we can care less about your guilt. We're tired. Lay down. Turn on murder, she wrote. That'll put you right out. Mark chapter 6, verse 31 says, And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place 
and rest a while. These are commandments from Jesus. Get away from all the other crazy, from all the other nonsense, and rest a while. You ever get six or seven hours of sleep and wake up just dog-tired? Because you didn't get good rest. Some of your body shut down. Your, your brain may not have. But you didn't get good rest. You might have slept a little here, a little there. I had my wisdom teeth out when I was 34 years old. I went into Dr. Winterstein, and he, uh, he put me under. He gave me something called propofol. Um, this is what Michael Jackson overdosed on. He, he was on a regimen of propofol all the time. And he comes in and he, he says, okay, I'm gonna get, you're going to feel a little pinch. I'll see you in about an hour. And he goes, count back from 10. I think I got to 7. And I woke up an hour later, had a little monitor on my finger, and I felt like I had slept for years. And I asked him, I said, Dr. Winterstein, is there any way I can just come back from time to time? Because that's the best rest I've had in a long time. And we don't rest well. We try to sleep we try to slow down, we try to time out, we try to strip some things away, but we don't just rest. And when I say rest, what I mean is we don't rest in the goodness of God, in his righteousness. And so we're full, we're maybe a little rested, but we're not satisfied. You ever wake up angry? Just knowing, I mean, not just because it's Monday, but you ever just wake up angry just knowing, man, I'm just, I'm not, I didn't sleep well, I'm not rested, my soul is disturbed something about that and so it just throws off everything else and finally the last one is boredom well listen some of you and I've talked to some of you before some of you are beginning to read your Bible maybe for the first time or you haven't read your Bible in a long time or you've never been taught to read the Bible and you think I know what I'll do I'll start at the very beginning of the Bible and I'll work my way through do not do that because if you make it through Exodus good for you Leviticus oh my goodness but when it comes to Deuteronomy you have messed up. You're not going to make it. You, you won't. Start in the book of John. Read the gospel. Start in the New Testament. The language is a little easier to understand. There's not as many great big names. Everybody's named Joseph, Jacob, and whatever. So you just kind of get used to that. But don't go back to those things, right? We get bored and we put things down. Things don't work out like we want them to. We put a lot of energy towards something. We're like, I'm bored. Anybody got kids? That that's your favorite line? It's not good morning, how are you, mom, good to see you, thanks for this meal, I'm bored, I'm bored, I'm bored. And then we buy them these expenses of electronic devices thinking this will satisfy their boredom, it does not. This past week I mentor a, a first grader here at Bryant, you guys know that, and this week we sat down, I'm not kidding you, me and this little, little guy, 40 minutes we sat down and played with blocks in the library. And we looked up and it was time for him to go to lunch. Neither one of us knew. And I wasn't just marveling at how the seven-year-old stayed focused on this. I was impressed with me. I'm like, oh, my goodness. When was the last time I sat down and did one thing for 40 minutes? One thing for 40 minutes. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 24 and 25 says this about boredom. There's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. There's nothing wrong with that. You should find that. But then he goes on and says, this also I saw is from the hand of God. In verse 25, he says, for apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? So many of the things that we do are just toil and toil and toil, and they don't bring about joy. Now, I'm not saying everything needs to be Disneyland. You have to have fun. with. I'm not saying that at all. What I am saying is that when God gives us toil, when he gives us work, he gives us that so that we may be satisfied in that because he too has given those jobs to us. 
And sometimes, you all know this, especially you adults, sometimes work is just work, and sometimes it's just a job, and sometimes you just go there, and other times you love your job. And the old saying that if you love what you do, you'll never work a day in your life, that's an outright lie, but it sounds good. Because sometimes you just got to go to work, and sometimes your love for that, it, it doesn't make up for everybody else around you. But when you get bored with something and you turn it down, you may find yourself full of plenty to do but not satisfied in what's being done. I want to leave you with this passage of scripture out of Isaiah this morning. Isaiah chapter 55, verses 1 and 2, and I think we've got it up here on the screen for you. This is God speaking to Isaiah, and he says to them, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich foods. You want to know how to, to understand that simple little verse, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they will be satisfied. You want to know what it is to seek after righteousness and what it is to be satisfied in the things of God? It's pretty simple. You just respond to his invitation. You stop trying to do that on your own. You come to the waters and you drink the living waters that he has. You come, you buy food without any money. You just get whatever's here at the king's table. It's open for you. You respond to his invitation to follow him. When he invites you to rest, you take rest. When he invites you to drink, you drink from living waters, not from nasty old puddles on the side of the road. You come, you respond to his invitation. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And we live in a day and age right now where those are great words to live by because it just seems like nobody's really satisfied anymore. And I fear it's a lot because of what the people did in Jeremiah's time. They forsook their God. And broke his heart. But a few years later, he would talk to Isaiah and he'd say, it's okay, come, come, and I'll take care of everything you need. Come and be satisfied in Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for your goodness and your grace and your mercy. Your love for us, Lord, is abounding in so many ways. And so, God, I confess, I fill my life up with a lot of different things. There are a lot of challenges that that I bring upon myself that are not from you. And so, Lord, in the midst of those challenges, I'm not satisfied. I'm full. I'm busy. I'm scheduled to the max, but, God, I'm, I'm bored even with plenty to do but no satisfaction in those things. And so, God, whether that be in our professional lives, whether that be in our relationships with one another, whether that be as husband and wife, God, we know that great Satisfaction only comes from you, and you want that for our lives. But when we forsake you and turn away from you, we don't find that. And so, God, this morning, I just pray if there's anyone here who needs to respond to your invitation to come and drink from the fountains of living water, to come and eat the rich food at your table, that they'll do so. That maybe they've been away from the table for a while, and they're full, but they're not satisfied. Or maybe they've never known how to find that place. They're full, but they're not satisfied. And so, God, this week, I, I pray that you would teach us to fill ourselves with the things of you, and there won't be room for anything else. It sounds a little too simple sometimes, Lord, but 
I know it's a lot harder than what we think, but we'll never be able to do it on our own. And that's why you gave us Jesus. And we thank you. We ask these things in his name. Amen. Amen.